Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Hey, everybody. This is Adam Pawatic from the CRE Podcast. Aaron and I are introducing a new segment to the show. We're creatively calling it the CRE Podcast After Show. And in it, Aaron and I will share you know, our thoughts on the topic matter, just the two of us dissecting what happened in the show and, and adding a little more color commentary to everything that we discussed. So please stay tuned at the end of the show. You're usually accustomed to hitting end when you hear our closing music, but there will be another 15 minutes of content, just Aaron and me. I hope you like it. Anyway, here's our main guest, John Fox. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I'd like to thank Informa for introducing us to our guest today, Mr. John Fox, who is the partners at Robbins Appleby LLP. Also, of course, before I forget, I'd like to introduce Adam Pawanek and myself, Aaron Cameron, as your host of the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming on. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited about this podcast because we're going to be talking about affordability in the housing sector. We're going to dive back into John's history and where he is today, but it basically has a long-standing relationship with working with the housing sector, public and private, on developing affordability. So we're going to spend most of the time just talking about the challenges we face with affordability in Canada and maybe some solutions we have. And then, of course, the impact that COVID is having on government regulations and maybe accelerating some initiatives to get affordability fast-tracked. There's a foreshadowing for you. Before we get to that, John, you know, with these podcasts with our guests, we always start with the background. Let me just talk about your career, how you got into law, how you got into real estate, how you got focused on affordability, and, you know, what was your path to lead to where you are today? Sure. Well, I started in law at a very small firm. I was articled in a recession and I didn't get hired back and I went to a small firm. Real estate was the most interesting topic that they had and we were doing everything, wills, real estate, litigation, the whole nine yards. And an opportunity came up to join McMillan Bench as it was then. And I was there for seven years, had a great experience there, and then joined Toronto Community Housing as in-house counsel responsible for development and ultimately became vice president of development on an interim basis until the end of my tenure there. And then I, I spent a couple of years running a small development company and then I came back to private practice and have a private law practice now where I spend about, I'd say, a third to 40% of my time working with clients who are involved in a not-for-profit housing, cooperative housing, or public sector entities trying to deliver more housing. i got to ask, John, you mentioned you started out you know, dabbling in a variety of types of law. If not real estate, what was your second choice? Well, I went in thinking I was going to be a litigator and uh, that I would go to court and have a lot of showtime, but I found that I liked the concreteness of of real estate. So I love the fact that we get to see what we do when it's done. So it's, it's not, it doesn't disappear. I don't have to point at my name in some obscure legal journal to say, that's what, that's what your dad did to my kids. I go to region, I point at those buildings. I say, that's what your dad did over there. So that's what I like about it. I like a good answer. There is a certain amount of pride in the tactile part of, of real estate. And most people that get into real estate, you know, it, it's the affordable sector doesn't leap to the forefront of most people's minds. It is fairly specialized, which maybe is a reflection on why affordability is such an issue. But to, Specifically, what drew you to wanting to work in the affordable sector? Well, I've always been drawn to public service and social justice in addition to being a lawyer. So when I was at McMillan, for instance, I was the chair of the Daily Bread Food Bank at the same time. And in some ways, joining TCHC was like a combination of those things. I really like real estate law and development law, and I like working with people in that sector. And so using that 
mode of working to deliver and replace and better units for tenants at Regent and elsewhere in the TCHC portfolio. It was a tremendous experience for me, very rewarding on many, many levels. So that's really what drew me there. And that still gets me going in the morning. I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but one thing that's really interesting is being challenged with finding new ways of delivering affordable housing, either in an ownership or rental model. And there's a lot of thinking in that regard going on. And getting involved in those things is really interesting. Yeah. So, so John, I, we want to get to your experience in TCHC and just maybe a little bit of, you know, providing a little bit of kind of history of the Toronto Community Housing Corporation. Before we go there, I mean, let's set a table. What is affordability, right? And I think if you ask one person versus another, they'll define it totally, completely differently. I mean, there's obviously cooperatives and not-for-profit affordability, but then other people are saying, well, if it's $3.75 a foot, that's affordable. How do you see it? And maybe there's, we got to carve it up into different layers of affordability. Well, I see it like this. So first of all, like, it's very easy to say everything's, every single piece of real estate, everything constructed is affordable to somebody or it wouldn't have been built. So the, the real question is whether or not we're delivering affordability across a spectrum of income brackets. So like when I think about it, if you are paying more than a third of your income into rent or living costs, then it's not affordable for you. And that's going to impact the rest of your life. And it's going to impact how you're able to deal with your kids. And it's going to impact all kinds of other stuff. And so we live in a world where there is a multiplicity of incomes out there and we want to have everybody housed. And so affordability has to span a spectrum. So to answer your question, for me, it's the starting point for affordability is the person who we're talking about. It's relative to the tenant, relative to the owner. So then in that, from that perspective, given that I don't know the exact numbers, but most people do, at least in the, you know, we're speaking from the GTA here, exceed that 30% threshold, even if it's not on you know, the cheapest housing available. Would you say yeah. that is rampant straight up and down the, you know, the economic uh, ladder? No, I mean, I think that a lot of people, well, first of all, a lot of people do live in accommodation they can afford even by that standard. Other people are in a gray zone, which is above that, but they're still putting it together for various ways and they're not in danger. But others are in much, have much more greater housing precarity and that and can impact their food security. When I was at the food bank, we knew that people were making choices all the time between rent and food. And that's a level of poverty where relieving people of the housing stress would be a great benefit to those families. That's not easy thing to do. So a lot of the tenants who are at Toronto Community Housing or who work through rent SUPs are on rental streams where they're what they're paying ultimately is a function of their income and others are not. Some of the new rent SUPs, which were brought in a couple of years ago, which are individualized, then people are making a choice. So if they have a certain amount of money, which they carry in to see a landlord, and if they have a, pick a higher rent, then they have less money left over. So you also don't want to take away some measure of individual choice. It's not, a, not pointing to tell, tell people where to go. Can we talk about your time at TCHC a little bit. Yeah, for, uh, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's one of the biggest landlords in the city. I mean, you, you hear some of the you know the more negative things about deferred capex in the portfolio and some of the issues, but they are by all any measure providing a lot of units to the residents of Toronto. It'd be great to hear your perspective on time working there and, and maybe some of the stuff you were proud of accomplishing in terms of you know your personal fulfillment in providing housing for people that need it. Well, for sure. Uh, First of all, it's not one of the biggest landlords in Toronto. It's the biggest landlord in the country. It's like the second in North America. At 56,000 units, it's a massive amount of... I remember the stat we used to have there was like 6% of the population of Toronto has the singular landlord, Toronto Community Housing. And it is easy to forget that there's something like 200 other nonprofit low-income housing providers in the city itself. But back to, to TCH, like the thing that was pretty amazing at the time when I was there, I was there 
between 2005, 2011. So I was there at the beginning of the Regent redevelopment and the process of redeveloping other sites, which are ongoing now. And the thing that is amazing about it to me is that is that uh, TCH at the time started. And it's by no means a risk-free thing and started with a very deliberate strategy of rebuilding and what I like to call de-radicalizing it. So some people call the Regent redevelopment radical, but in fact, putting in streets and putting Retail on streets is not radical at all. That's exactly what most of us have around in our neighborhoods. But there's significant differences than what you would have seen before. Like before, it was all the same architecture, same over and over again. Very deliberate choice at TCHC not to have the same architects. The very first building built with black brick. I remember pulling up there in a cab once and the guy says, that's social housing? That's not social housing. You're not supposed to know, but it's, it is social housing. It's a beautiful building. And we really had the attitude that the buildings would be there forever. And, and as Churchill once said, we make our buildings and then they make us. And we took that very seriously. So the relationship between the street and the buildings is really important in the feel you would have walking there. One of my favorite things to do, and I did this not that long ago when I was meeting somebody there, is to go to the Tim Hortons. I say that now and I feel almost wistful at going to Tim Hortons and sitting around for a while. But uh, I've never been in any place where more different types of people come in through the door to order a coffee and go in the morning. Like It's an amazing bit of Toronto to be a part of. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of, the, of what was developed there. I'm very proud of the Arts and Culture Center that is there. I think it really has turned into a beating heart for that community. I think that the playing fields, which are on the back at the corner, of River Street and Shooter is probably the single most beautiful thing I've ever seen beyond a, an artist representation. And when you get to see all the different people playing on those fields or watch the kids watch TFC practice there from time to time, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing to see. So places like that, redevelopments like that, they're like a comet. They attract partnerships and resources. And Region has had a really nice chunk of that kind of extra benefit. And it's as a result, there's it's a tremendous result. And I think all Torontonians should be pretty proud of it. And we, we did it, right? Because if, if nobody had bought there, it wouldn't have happened. And people who bought there, they pioneered, they did a great thing. I mean, for those listening, just outside of Toronto, Region's a big, huge plot of land almost immediately east of the downtown core that I guess it was the 60s when they built the lot originally that was kind of, you know, you wouldn't want to walk in there because a giant, just one giant block that was, I guess, subsidized with social housing. And I guess, what was it, John, about 10, 15 years ago, it was redevelopment plan, partnership, public-private partnerships. I think Daniel's Development Corp was one of the largest partners with you guys. And, and now, it, as you indicated, it, you couldn't tell that there was a social or subsidized housing component to it. It looks like any other development in the city. Maybe, and maybe that's a good segue, is that in my sense, being just a Torontonian and you know, being in the real estate community for such a long time, it used to be, I think, TCHC had a bit of a sort of a negative component to it or negative, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but there was negativity. Like maybe it's just the media sensationalizing it, but it feels like it's turned itself around. Do you think part of that is just engaging private developers and trying to create more of a, a mixed use in their operations? Well, you have to remember, it's, it, the fact that it's big is not necessarily a, a good thing every day. So being the CEO of Toronto Community Housing is without a word of a lie, the hardest job I've ever seen anybody do. You've got 56,000 households who think you're personally responsible for a good night's sleep. And it's a very challenging job. I'd say that the parts of the, what TCHC has been really excellent at in the course of those redevelopments, not just been connecting with private developers in a successful way, but part of the thing that you don't see happening is the extent of their engagement with the community. For people who are not there or not engaged, the tendency is to think, well, how is it that new residents buying there are going to interact with the existing social housing residents who aren't going anywhere? Like they're being rehoused on site by and large. 
And when you get there, you start to appreciate the extent to which there's a disruption in the culture, the existing culture of the place, which is its own special and beautiful thing. So TCH was very engaged in dealing with tenants, in generating tenant leadership who could communicate in their own words what was happening from TCH. And that was critical to being able to move those developments forward. It's no accident that the first street they put back in was named after tenant leader. And I hope they continue to honor tenant leadership that way. After all, it's only tenants put up with like 30 years of construction, right? Could you imagine? So they're real heroes for of those redevelopments and uh, they should be honored as that. Yeah, I actually, before the major undertaking took place, I lived a couple blocks away from there and it was, you know, the most terrifying part of my journey home was going through that area because it was just crime-ridden, to, to say the least. And then I had not been back in a number of years, and it was probably about four or five years ago, I ended up over in that area to look at a site for work, and my jaw hit the ground. It was unrecognizable at multiple levels. You know, visually, obviously, you said you make, we make the cities and they make us. Visually, was completely different, but just the, the entire atmosphere, everything had entirely changed. Aaron alluded a bit to the, the private-public partnership and Daniels being mm-hmm. involved. Do you see that as a winning formula for addressing some of the areas that need more affordable units? I do, but you use the word formula, and formula here matters in the sense that the basic equation for revitalization for Toronto community housing is can we pay for the replacement units through the development of condominium? Depending on where you are, it takes more condominium units to replace a single unit of housing. So if it costs, let's just, I'll pick a number out of the air. Like in my time, I think we were saying it costs about $200,000 a unit to replace a TCHC rental unit. So maybe it's more now. But you can imagine that if your profit on a condominium is sixty, seventy thousand, $70,000 or whatever it is, you're going to have to multiply that out. So there's a lot of development required in order to to replace individual units. And depending on where you are in the city, that land value changes. So the region formula, is it applicable everywhere? No. And I know this because when I was there, we ran we actually ran an RFP for a number of sites which were not as centrally located as Regent or Alex Park. And only two of them actually came back meeting that equation. And so and they're under development now by Fram and Tridel. But be that as it may, like it, the formula does not work without external subsidization on every site in every part of the city. And oftentimes I've been asked by people outside the city, can I make this work in parts of Ontario, which are not urban? And I'm like, well, you're going to need a 40-story building. And they're like, oh my God, that's crazy. So, you know, it does, it's a wonderful opportunity. It attracts a ton of attention, but it's not everywhere where you get to develop on 70 acres of land in proximate to downtown Toronto. That just doesn't exist everywhere. I think it's, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, John, because this is just my own personal sort of insight, but maybe part of the challenge is that there's, it's not like, you know, the TCH just owns, you know, a couple thousand hundred unit buildings everywhere, right? It's extremely spread out. And, you know, I, I remember I lived in the beaches, you know, a decade ago, and there was a duplex next to next down the street from us that had, there was, there was TCH, a duplex that a, a private owner would have you know, disposed of a long time ago because it's inefficient to manage and operate a duplex in, in a residential neighborhood. Is that part of the challenge that they have that such a large footprint and such sort of scattered units? Well, you're, it's two different things. At so sometimes the, the, the campus-like settings like Regent or Lawrence Heights, like there there's tremendous development opportunity. The scattered units are going to always be more expensive than collected units to manage and so on. There is certainly a case to be made that having the ability to house families in units and they're in good repair in different parts of the city is fine. And it's actually probably a really good thing for maintaining diversity within the city and so on. There are certainly times though when those houses get beyond repair. And, and I, my own view is that's a good time to sell them because the underlying real estate is valuable, as you know. 
Okay, so thanks thanks for spending the time on TCH. I think it's an interesting component of our city, fabric of our commercial real estate community. But that's not where you work now. So let's move off. That's true. I, yeah, I want to let's just can we just jump into supply first as as a as a, a byproduct yeah. of a formula, I guess, for lack of a better word, for affordability, and maybe kind of what you're seeing in your current job about how you're helping your developer clients with just providing more supply for our community. Sure. Well, supply. There's nothing better than supply. We, we should have as much housing as we can. And the places I see where that kind of hits the rubber has, where I think there's some problems in slowing supply is this. First, we want to encourage, continue to encourage the creation of rental. It was really off the charts for a long time. It had of all sort of three kinds of housing that the government has supported over the course of time, rental has really been the one in the caboose, right? So the tremendous support for ownership housing through the course of the years, some support for the housing sector, nonprofits, cooperatives, and so on over the years, not that much for private rental. We've seen tremendous growth in the city in that regard. There's actual full-on development of rental units now. That should be encouraged. Second thing, there are the fights over density, plus or minus three floors here, or unused space, which somebody decides to turn into a park because nobody wants to have uh, four or six stories of seniors living there or whatever the proposal happens to be. The time for that has to be passed, right? We, we, just ha- we need the housing in this city, as I said before, on a variety of income, for a variety of income levels, and we, can't, we just cannot give up opportunities. The way we set up ourselves in terms of advocating for housing it's always skewed towards the people who live there today because there's very few people who are able to stand up and say, I'm going to speak now today for people who don't live here. And yet that's very much needed. So when somebody says this should be a seven-story building, not a 10-story building, the absence of the homes that could have been created in the seven to 10 stories, there's nobody defending that. The developer really stands in sometimes for that defense. And in the past, the OMB has. But I think it's important that we recognize that and and we reward politicians who are willing to stand up for that kind of additional density. Of course, where it makes sense, but the definition of when it makes sense is often left to a fairly small group of people who are in the immediate vicinity that is going to be impacted as opposed to acting in the best interest of the city as a whole. So I think that's important. And I actually think, you know, you asked me earlier on about COVID. One of the things that I think people will focus on is the need for housing. And I think that may impact how we see additional density in our town. You mentioned supply being critical, and that would be true of units, you know, virtually every price point. What's the most cost-effective way of delivering them to the market? I mean, obviously, you know, you got private, you got public, private-public partnerships, various models of funding it within, various ways of, you know, including units in a zoning perspective. What's the most cost-effective way of getting that to the people that need it? I'm not going to stand in the way of anybody delivering units to market. I think that the real question is, how do you deliver it in a way where it's not all focused on a marginal buyer who is at a high level and therefore there is a a variety of income levels being served by the creation of housing? And that's not necessarily going to be, as in in global terms, the most wealth generation out of the development of land. And that may mean some regulatory intervention, or it may mean that when public sector land is coming up for sale, that there's a deliberate attempt, and I think that there is a deliberate attempt, to resource and support the development of larger nonprofits who are then able to lever their own assets in further competitions for land and development. So, John, that leads my brain to just thinking about ways in which government. I want to call it intervention, but government relationships, government partnerships are needed for supply or you know, supply, I guess, of both regular and, and quote-unquote affordable units. Zoning is one that always comes up that you know, the city could really use zoning to really encourage development. You, know, you, you get out of that argument about should it be eight stories or 10 stories or six stories or whatever if they just say it, 
it shall be eight. And that, that allows the developer to know what they're buying, know what to pay and just move forward, including zoning. But are there other things that you've seen in your, in your practice where governments have been able to really encourage the development of new supply? Sure. Well, first of all, I don't think you should be afraid to say government intervention. I mean, it does happen. It's been happening for years and there's government intervention through and through the housing process, ownership, rental, the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think we should be shy of saying that there's government right. intervention and or that there's a need for regulation and that there's tension in regulation. And that's OK. That's part of living in a democratic world. So, like, yeah. So one thing we see right now is CMHC coming back into and the federal government coming back into housing in a material way. And they are are intervening, just by way of example, at very different levels. So of the two main programs they're they're operating, one is a co-investment program, which is aimed at affordable housing, where you're ending up with 80% of average market rent as units. And it's a very different formula with their RCFI initiative, but because their RCFI initiative is really aimed at promoting rental housing altogether, and there's an affordability component. So it's, in my mind anyway, one one has a different engine and a different caboose and they're carrying on. So those are examples of current intervention. And I, I don't think that's going to stop. Another examples in where I think is, it has been very useful is the sale of public land to support housing. So there, government intervention doesn't come in the form of regulation. That's government intervening because it owns the land. It has the capacity as a landowner to impose requirements on a sale. So a good example of that is the sale of the blocks in the West Dawn lands to Dream Kilmer Tricon, where part of that deal was you're going to deliver affordable housing at certain levels and certain levels. And what that did effectively was to drive down the rental price and the rental price for those leases became the point on which competitors were competing. So uh, I'm seeing a lot of that and that is driving. And you can tell that that was seen as successful in the public sector because that is the primary model that Housing Now is using at the City of Toronto when it's looking at other sites. It's not looking at the straight sales, it's looking at long-term leases. So those are examples of places where we're seeing government intervention in a positive way. Less developed is inclusionary zoning because it's still kind of a framework and we haven't really seen it imposed. It's you know, from my perspective, and I'm sure you'll glean this by now, the use of zoning to generate housing in condominium stock or rental, which is affordable, I'm totally cool with. So, you know, sometimes that has taken the form in the past of a not-for-profit owning units in a condominium. That is still, I'd like to continue to see that experiment run. It's not easy for the not-for-profits in those scenarios. It feels like free, but they're paying fees based on the condo fees. And we have to see whether that's actually going to work out or not. We've seen Habitat and Options engaged. Those are ownership models. Much easier fits in a condominium complex. Going back to Regent for a second, there was a deep affordability model in which put 11 tenants into ownership in one of the first condominiums. You'd never be able to tell today who's who. So those models exist and can be used through an inclusionary zoning process without significant impact. And I think that we should be looking at those things. Can you just define inclusionary zoning before we move on, just for those that may not be familiar with the term or only have heard it in sort of vagueness? Well, everybody's heard it in vagueness because that's kind of how it's always expressed. So for, for me, for me, it's the use of zoning to compel the delivery of affordable units within a building. So as part of achieving a zoning approvals, you will be required to deliver units at an affordable level. But remember, the city of Toronto itself is a plan. Affordability is just average market rent in the city of Toronto. So depending on where you are in the city of Toronto, that's going to be higher or lower than what average market rent is in the next building beside you. So there is room for like refining that for sure. And I'll play devil's advocate, I guess. And I know the obstacle to inclusionary zoning is as soon as you apply it, that value of that land changes. And, and that's the crux, I assume. 
Of course, but you know, we've had we've lived in Toronto with rental replacement for a long time, and you apply that to a piece of land, and the value goes down. Does it make it a bad policy? Well, most developers, it's a pain in the arse, but they're still developing those sites because the value is carrying those sites. So if the value of the land can carry those sites, then why not do it? Yeah, no, fair enough. Maybe that's a good segue just for a quick conversation about land prices and maybe just talking to your clients about you know where they're finding value, where they're being able to develop land that allows them to provide affordability or just supply that isn't condos. And maybe you would include yeah. condos so, in your supply discussion. For sure. Oh, I do. I, I mean, to, to me, housing is housing. If you wanted, if you were so fixated on rental, you want to build rental all over the city, I guess you would just prohibit condos because that would make rental much more attractive. But that's just not the real world. And rental condominium has been providing the main source of additional rental for decades until the last like five years. So of course, it's all part and parcel. And when builders build condominium and have to deal with rental replacement, they're replacing it inside the condominium. So all of that is still very much in play. There is a currently in my, I grant you guys, I have a view that is related to the desk of a lawyer. But what I am detecting is that there is a disconnect in Toronto right now about value of land. And as a result, there is certainly in my experience, fewer originating deals. So fewer agreements of purchase and sale. And I think that part of the principal reason for that is not because people are not confident in the future of Toronto. Because I think people are confident in the future of Toronto. I think people are confident in the notion that there will be need for more housing in Toronto. But there's a disagreement on what the value of the land is and whether or not the impact of our shutdown is impacting land to the same sense. So if, if you have land and are trying to sell it, the general view is in the long term, this is all going to be fine. And by the time you develop the land and are actually selling stuff or renting, you're going to be back to normal. So why should I take a haircut on my land price? And if you're buying, you don't want to take that risk and would like a haircut on your land price. And so I've heard numbers anywhere from 15 to 20% down from the uh, time that COVID really hit. And then from people who own land, they just, they don't accept that at all. And that kind of means that there's a bit of a standoff from my perspective. Now, that's not scientific. I'm no Benjamin Tal. I'm not aggregating numbers across time and across cities and stuff like that. So that, but that's what I see from my little perch. Well, you're not wrong that a lot of us are doing it by gut at this point, by virtue of the fact that there's not a lot of data to go on right now. You addressed the issue of, of course, you know, decreased rents affects ultimate value of apartments and various ways of addressing that to make you know, developers whole in the sense of including affordable components. But one that we have only talked about briefly you know, is finance. And for anybody unfamiliar with the world and not for profit finance, you're going to be quite jealous of the options available as compared to the, the market rent program. Can you talk about some of the programs that the developers are using to, to finance these projects to offset some of the, the loss of decreased rents? Well, let me just redefine developer for you and for me and for your listeners here, because when I'm thinking about my developers are broader than for-profit developers. So I have non-for-profits who are acting in the role of traditional developers, buying land, building, entering into contracts and developing supportive housing facilities and stuff like that. That's part of what we do. And they have, first of all, have access to all of the regular financing and go through all of the same hurdles and hoops that everybody else does and have to deal with the fact that they're often confined and so they need to, their covenants can be a little bit different and so on. However, one of the housing entities in Ontario, Housing Services Corporation, which is a creature of the province but acts independently, along with BC Housing and the Housing Authority of Manitoba, have created a Canadian mechanism whereby they are able to go to the bond markets essentially with an aggregated borrow 
and they then are able to generate 30 to 40 year money. Now, it's usually more expensive than what you would get for five year money. Like the, I think I was in like high threes or low fours the last time I was talking to them. But you can appreciate that for a nonprofit where you're not turning residents over, units over, and increasing the rent because that's not the raison d'etre. You are vulnerable to increases in rent, like tremendously vulnerable to increases in rent. And so locking that in over a period of time is an attractive option. That creates what could be, a, with low interest rates now, a real opportunity for the not-for-profits to play a more aggressive role. And I am seeing it, in my world, a more consolidation amongst nonprofits in order to have stronger balance sheets and a more assertive role in generating relationships with not just private developers, but just private builders and then going out trying to purchase land or participating in public RFPs and leading those charges instead of being the sort of the icing on the cake where the developer has the bulk of the product and the bulk of the units and then there's a few units set aside for the nonprofit. It's more the nonprofit is either a partner or trying to lead that and, and uh, do its own development. And that's a change. So what they ideally want is not just units in the building, they want the building. And they want to have they want to run the building with fifty percent, say for example, at full market so that they have a forever subsidy of the units in the building, which are below market. And I'd say five, 10 years ago, you wouldn't really have heard of that very much. And now that's the ambition. And I'm glad for that. I'm glad for that ambition in the not-for-profit community. Let's transition, John, and just to current situation. I don't think we date stamped it, but Thursday, July 2nd, 2020, of course, all in quarantine. Slowly but surely, it feels like we're getting out of quarantine. I don't know if you've gotten a haircut yet. I haven't. Adam hasn't, but some people are these days. And so let's just talk about what COVID has done to the nonprofit world or the affordability world and how you think it's going to have an impact going forward. Yeah. So first of all, I got a haircut and it was awesome. <laughs> Secondly, there's a, I think there's a couple of big things. So first of all, nonprofits like every other rental provider, in fact, probably every condominium owner and manager is under pressure in terms of being able to protect its tenants and doing all the right things and worrying about what COVID exemptions are going to come in insurance policies when all those policies become renewed. Like nobody really knows. And so that's a good deal of pressure. So I'm seeing, from a developer perspective though, I'm seeing more pressure on consolidation within that community. We're also seeing more deliberate and direct action from the city of Toronto, for example, where they have begun to do supportive, modular supportive housing on their sites rather than put them out to tender. So there are sites in the Housing Now program which will be out and, and competed, but they, they have some which they're just going to build modular housing on and use that for supportive housing. And I think the big change here is that in the minds of everybody, really, for the first time for, in a long time, there's a real direct connection between housing and public health. So if COVID is the virus, the prescription is stay home and wash your hands. But you can't stay home if you don't have a home. And the more you're out there generating where you have a group of people who are potentially continuing to have the virus, that's a problem. And so the reaction to that is let's buy hotels where we can put people, one person, one bed. You've heard the city's councillors say that. Let's do modular housing on this site in order to keep people off the street. Let's house people. That direct connection is a big change in the minds of people because we know that it's going to imp it impacts all of us now. So I think that's a big change. So I think it'll change the politics of it. And, and that's why I said earlier, I think that that kind of push at that level will also have implications when it comes to density and the like, and the like because we just cannot afford to lose housing opportunities. At a more you know, holistic level from a development perspective, if there is a slowdown in this city in general in development, obviously that will impact the delivery of affordable units. Will that create additional pressure on the existing stock or how do you see that aspect playing out that there might be a little bit of a slowdown in construction? 
It depends. So first of all, there hasn't been a slowdown in construction. Like all that I have seen is a slowdown in the origination documents. The funny thing is I'm super busy. And one of the things I'm really busy on is all of the stuff that you do when you have a project underway. So the architect, the builder, all that stuff, it's all happening. People want to get it done and they're moving their projects forward. So I'm not seeing a slowdown yet in actual development. Now, if nobody contracts a piece of land or trades a piece of land, obviously that's going to happen. But I don't think we're there yet. And I so I think if you have a slowdown and you have less product coming to market, then yes, of course, existing stock will feel more pressure. And yes, of course, that will impact affordability. But I'm not, I'm fairly optimistic about that. I think the upside of one of the, one of the things coming out of this is that the pressure on development of housing will keep the residential sector fairly strong, both at the construction level and through the development phase. Yeah, I am happy to report that from our perspective in the world as lenders, we've not seen too much of a slowdown in construction, which uh, is encouraging for a quick uh, rebound. So, John, the, the big question we've saved for the end here, you know, we've talked about private, public, TCHC, zoning, deep affordability, finance, COVID-19. So with everything we've talked about in mind, and we imbue on you just the almighty power to make happen your all your wishes, what do you do? What do you change? What do you implement to make the world a better place from an affordability perspective? Well, I mean, there's only, to my mind, there's only really one answer or one starting point for that. The federal government, I think very much to its credit, put into legislation, recognized the human right to housing, which we recognize as a country through the United Nations in the past. But turning that into action means that instead of thinking of it as a supply side piece, you will also think of it as a demand side. And the challenge is to house everybody that we can house. And we have risen to that challenge before when there's been disasters and people have been out of housing, whether that was in Calgary or wherever. And we can still do that. So I don't say there's any method that is being employed now, which is problematic. The beauty of my job right now is I, I'm like silo buster. Like I have a whole series of groups and clients who are doing different things. And I, I want them all to continue and all to be successful because there's room for all of them to be successful. As they all go forward, that will generate additional housing at different levels. And that's the only thing that we can carry on to do. Ultimately, there is room for government intervention in doing this and ensuring that out of the product of of the development of land, there is availability of housing at a spectrum of income levels. And I highly encourage and I advocate for that. But I think it all starts with acknowledging that it's a human right and therefore we have to put our back into housing. John, I love your view on affordability and you know, and how it can help the greater good. You know, I won't make a lawyer's joke about how that could be an uncommon trait, but I definitely say uh, you're one of the good ones. Joe, we want to thank you for having me on the podcast today. This is really a topic that's not going to go away. I'm sure we could have you back on in a year and we'd have a whole other hour to talk about in terms of the pressing issues of the time. But we do appreciate the snapshot you gave us today. We want to thank First National for powering the podcast and Informa for giving us an introduction to John. This was uh, great. Thanks again, John. Thank you. Well, welcome to the first CRE podcast after show where Adam and I kind of digest the conversation that just occurred with John Fox. We're going to start doing this after every podcast. You know, quick history. I mean, what happens when we finish recording the podcast, you know, almost inevitably Adam and I jump on a call and talk about the podcast and it it always just kind of digesting what was going on. And so we thought, you know, maybe rather than doing this offline, why don't we try to do it online and see if people find it interesting. And really it's an opportunity for him and I just to kind of discuss some of the topics that were covered by our guest, maybe elaborate on them, maybe add some color, and or maybe, you know, 
display our, our lack of understanding of some of the things that were discussed. Because sometimes we're like, I don't really understand where he was going with that or where that guest was going with that. Anyway, so hopefully you enjoyed the recording or the episode with John Fox. Really interesting conversation about affordability. You know, it's one of those topics that I think is getting more coverage these days. I, it seems to be something that comes up in conversation, whether it's in regular daily in our world in finance, but you know, you see it on webinars, on forums. It's something that I think is top of mind for everyone. And it's really, really challenging. And I think, you know, what John was kind of giving a bunch of different comments about how, whether it's through financing with CMHC or, or not, whether it's the city zoning, whether it's, you know, opponents of the Toronto Community Housing Corporation, there's just so much that goes into trying to figure out how we can deliver more affordable units. And then even what does affordability mean? I mean, I, it's one of those things that's just so, so difficult for the community to kind of figure out what the resolution is. You know, Adam, for us to just kind of chat this through, my mind has always been zoning. And we kind of touched on that. And we kind of covered inclusionary zoning. And with that, you know, nobody really knows what that is. You know, I was quickly Googling inclusionary zoning. And, and I, there's an article or a city of Toronto website talking about how for the last 10 years, they've been trying to figure out how to implement inclusionary zoning. And they appreciate that that may be the solution. But, you know, I almost rolled my eyes because, it, you know, of course, it's been 10 years they've been thinking about it, but haven't actually made any decisions on how to implement inclusionary zoning. Well, in, in the same breath, you know, for a 10-year time horizon, you know, as an example, in Toronto's last mayoral election, every candidate had plans that over a 10-year period of time, I'll provide X number of affordable units. And they were all very large numbers. And I won't get into the details of which candidates or which numbers were the front runner of it. But point being, in this 10-year plan, your plan is to put out 10 times more units than historically has happened, whereas we just witnessed a 10-year period go by where there was no progress on that file. So it does really highlight the behemoth sluggish progress at a bureaucratic level to address this problem. Well, and then we've had lots of guests talk about just the challenge that we have as a real estate community relying on quite frankly, relying on politicians to make decisions for us, right? Because the politicians, their decision-making is not necessarily aligned with the best interests of the community at large, but with the best interests of getting reelected. So, you know, we talk about nimbyism coming up, but I think that's one of those things that at least I don't see it getting enough coverage as far as how much of an impediment that is to development and supply. I mean, no, you can you can define affordability any which way that you want, but the reality is if we could just bring on more supply, and John said that, right? Like that's the ultimate goal, whether it's condos, whether it's affordable units, and you can define affordability however you want, whether it's just rental units. I mean, it doesn't matter. Just We just need more housing. And unfortunately, at times, you know, the politicians get in the way only because there's a small fraction of their constituency saying, not in my backyard, not in my backyard. And all of a sudden, they're making decisions based on 5% of the population, whereas the 95% would actually benefit from the other decision. I mean, and it's tough for them. I get it. But I mean, I think we've had guests on just say, if you could just get the politicians out of the way, we'd have a ton more deliverable units in a much more you know quick manner. I mean, we might be being a little unfair to politicians and that they are working within a system that's difficult to change. And I know there are a lot of people with the best of intentions in that role. Oh, for and sure. And they do get of stuck course. in the, the inactivity in the, in the quicksand. And it's, it's got to be frustrating for those that you know really want to address this file. But one thing, of course, is worth mentioning is it's not just from a political level. You know, Aaron's and I's favorite topic being finance, of course. There is programs in place from CMHC that are really, uh, you know, it's amazing financing meant to incentivize affordable development. And it has increased the amount of development in pipeline that will be affordable. 
but compared to what's needed, it's a drop in the bucket. I don't know how you address it. I, I remember being in, at the Vancouver Real Estate Forum a couple of years ago, a city that arguably has a worse affordability problem than Toronto. And I must have heard the word affordable mentioned 10 times on every single panel all day long. And I, I actually, in a, in a recent interview with Paul Finkbeiner, he stood up at the end of that day, he was in the closing panel and said, Vancouver is not meant to be affordable. And it sounds a little callous. And he did explain it on the show. So you will hear that and get a better, clear definition of what he means. But sometimes the problem of affordability is not going to be addressed. It's too difficult to be addressed. It's an ongoing issue in virtually every urban center. So we, we get to sit here as, you know, Monday morning quarterbacks kind of pointing out all the flaws. You know, Aaron, what would you see as a solution then? If we're going to be positive rays of light in this world, what's the solution? <laughs> well, I mean, I honestly personally think it's just it's zoning, which is back to the city level. You know, before we go there, I mean, let's just let's stick to the financing and, and like CMH sees an amazing job. Like that's kudos to the federal government or a federal agency. You know, they've got a what we call an affordable flex program, which you know, allows other lenders to offer great higher leverage, low interest rates with long amortizations, like really, you know, lots of different levers to pull on a financing side to keep the cost down on the financing side. They've also got that RCFI program, which offers another layer of additional sort of benefits to the financing. But the reality is, you know, the financing costs only make up a small portion of your budget. And so when you're looking at trying to pro forma out a development and you're trying to figure out what your rents need to be, trying to add affordability into it often will just eliminate that development or, or prevent you from building that development. So in my mind, it's zoning, right? If you can prove to, if you can a blanket zone or inclusionary zone or whatever it is, and just say, okay, this big strip, whether it's you know down Young Street or along Bloor, it's eight stories and you have to build 10% affordable units or just 10% rental or whatever it is, at least then developers know what the price is, that land becomes stable. You know what you can build. You know that if you build what the zoning is in place for, then you can get it through the permitting process properly or quickly. You can deliver those units more quickly. Like that's the biggest challenge, right? Is that when you're going to try to buy some land and even if in your heart of hearts for an developer, you really want to build affordable units. You have no idea what the DCs are going to be in five years, what kind of you know additional needs are going to be added on by the city, how long it's going to take, what rents you can get. Like there's just so many uncertainties. So ultimately I think you know you get in it with developers that just look for the easiest solution rather than trying to get into sort of the, the affordable space. But and you don't blame them. they they have shareholders or they have owners that are in need to develop some sort of profit, right? So it's a challenge. It's so hard. I mean it's it's such a complicated thing. The other piece on zoning that you frequently hear is apartment only zoning, which would, as you said, define the buildable, allowable buildable and shorten the timelines because the big equation that happens in virtually every market is condo versus apartment. And in all but a few pockets, typically condo is going to be the winner. And it's an attractive proposition that you get in and get out and you get your money. Obviously, with apartments, it's a different proposition. You get your money in and then over time, you get it back. And if you do the breakdown on you know, an IRR basis, when you get that, you know, the, the huge return within a couple of years of initial acquisition, it's a compelling case to build condos. And, you know, Aaron and I are big proponents of apartments, but we fully understand the condo equation making a lot of sense. But yeah, the levers to pull, I mean, we're talking about the magical levers that Aaron and I's supreme dictators would implement. <laughs> that, that is one of them. Fast tracking would be one of them. You know, the whole period on development is really expensive for developers. When you're just sitting on a, a non-income producing asset going through the process, that detracts from a lot of your potential profit. You know, it, it's uh, and that's a lever that, pull, that you can pull without doing a discount on development charges or something that actually you know, significantly impacts 
city funding. And so I hear a lot of talk about it. You know, I'd love to see it and not just for the selfish purposes that Aaron and I are big proponents of apartments. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and it's not like apartments aren't being built. I mean, even just at First National, we've got something like a billion dollars of financing. I don't even know what that adds up to a number of units, but it's a lot across the country. But, you know, even those developers, often it's on land that they previously owned. So the land's cheap, which allows them to make sense of the pro forma. Or it's owners that are, you know, pension funds or life insurance companies where they can take a 30-year horizon. So they're running their IRR calculations with 30-year returns on that rent, which kind of justifies the cost of the land. You may not make money on day one, but if you're going to own that thing for quote unquote forever, you'll eventually end up in the black. And so if you're a for-profit private developer, I mean, geez, it, it's really, really hard. And, you, and you're acquiring land. You're not, you don't have this sort of massive land bank to draw on that you've been, you know, you know, building for 20 years. It makes it really, really tough to justify building apartments. Now, with that said, condos are still good. I mean, John said that in his email. Like, I don't really care as long as there's more units coming online. And that's back to the time frames, right? Even if you're building, even if you're a condo developer, I mean, at least you're providing housing for Canadians. But if it takes you seven years or eight years from the day you acquire the land to actually deliver that condo unit, there's a lot of of uncertainty and there's a lot of things that can go wrong in that time frame and unfortunately the development like the actual build only takes you know a year and a half two years depending on the size that five-year period beforehand is just the entitlement process and the community engagement process and it's incredible how long it takes for these guys to actually go from you know acquisition to delivery i mean I, i'll admit that before working in real estate you know i would notice a building that had been chained off with some development signs up that was, you know, something going to happen. And it would sit there for four or five years. And as a, you know, a lay person at the time, I would just assume that the owner had abandoned the project. I'm like, oh, well, that will never happen. It's been like that for four years now. Clearly something's gone wrong. Maybe the building's derelict at this point. And then all of a sudden there's a giant hole and 30 stories coming out of it. But I, I will admit, I did think that it's been so long, this project must have been a disaster. And of course, that is not the case. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's not say that all those things like the process of getting the city engaged and the rezoning and this, the community engagement, it's all important. But, you know, again, back to the zoning concept, if you were buying something and you knew it was zoned for a certain density and you're intending on building at that density, all of a sudden four years or five years of that process turns into one year that changes the amount of supply that comes online. And I think ultimately, you know, this is a conversation about affordability. Like it's just, it's ultimately supply. Like that's all it is. The more supply it's in, I mean, it's a simple economics 101 graph, right? More supply means lower prices. Like that's the reality. Well, and to the point of the hold period, that's also an expensive period from a finance standpoint that your land loan is going to be the most expensive financing you have in the process. Your construction loan is going to be cheaper. And then obviously your term loan is going to be another decrease in your interest costs. And so not only are you shortening the timeline, you're shortening the what is by far the most expense-laden portion from a finance perspective of that. And if you can lower costs, you don't need as high rents to justify a return. And ultimately, at least from the, from the profit-driven developers, you know, return is a major consideration. But there's a big part of the market that's not driven by profit on these units. And that would be you know, specifically groups committed to providing affordable units irrespective of Profit, which is a different segment of the market. You know, First National does work with both those kinds of groups, but it does lead to also the question of how do you define affordability? We talked about it a little bit in the show. And so you could measure it you know, annually, X amount of units were delivered at affordable rates, but affordable could mean 10% reduction off of absolute peak market brand new unit pricing, or it can mean completely subsidized housing. There's a real range. And so not only would success be measured in the total number of units being delivered, but also delivering at different segments 
of affordability. It's a complicated problem and hopefully gets solved in our lifetime, but I wouldn't count on it. Yeah, you know, so you can clearly tell Adam and I could ramble on about this forever, but we're going to wrap it up. But as Adam was talking, I remember sitting in a room watching a panel on affordability and I can't remember who the gentleman was, so I apologize. But what he was saying was just take the whole concept of affordability out of the development process. Stop saying, you know, whether it's inclusionary zoning or not or whatever it is, don't worry about, you know, how many units you have that are affordable go to the individual. If an individual who needs an affordable unit, the city kind of gives them almost like a, they were kind of using just like a, like a driver's license. It's like an affordable license. Like you, yeah, we deem that you certainly deserve some subsistence in your living or your, some, some subsidy. So here's a card and you just, you go and find a unit wherever it is, whether you're renting from an individual condo owner or renting in an apartment building, you take that card, you give it to your landlord, they're going to still earn market rent. And me as the city, I'm just going to subsidize to the level that I think you need. So it all of a sudden, the developers now have nothing to do with trying to figure out how to in- implement or include affordable units in their development. They just build to market and the city then provides the subsidy to the individuals and allows the individuals to live wherever they want. And it takes the whole equation out of the development process. I mean, I think that's an interesting solution. I don't know if it's ever been implemented or not, but it's a different angle that I don't hear anybody talking about. And it also add benefit to the recipient that now the entire rental market is available to them rather than just specified units in pockets throughout the city that maybe aren't functional from a geography perspective you know, for that person. So it, it is interesting. It takes the policing off of the buildings as well and just puts it onto the, the actual individual. It's, yeah. It's yeah and, and, well, I, I think this is a wrong connotation, but people do think, well, it's an affordable building means you're going to have you know poor quality tenants and it means the building's going to run, be run down more quickly and the community around it's going to have some seediness. Like, I don't think that's true, but you know that concept just removes any of those sort of connotations. Like now you've just got people that deserve some sort of subsidy in their rent, just living wherever they want throughout the city. Right. So anyway, it's an interesting concept. Aaron, have we, have we exercised our thoughts on? <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> Thanks for those that stayed tuned or kept listening. We're going to try to do this throughout the next couple of podcasts and hopefully you liked it. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.